So we talked last week about satisfaction. Are we satisfied this Christmas? And that, that greatly depends on where we're looking for satisfaction. It depends on who we're looking to for satisfaction. Because a lot of things uh, can provide satisfaction for a period of time, but eventually that satisfaction will run out. It's only when we look to our Savior and when we allow him to give us peace and contentment in life that we truly find satisfaction. And by looking to Christ and focusing on him, yes, at Christmas, but all year long, that's the time where we truly find satisfaction in life. In life. And we learn that the important thing is and at Christmas and all of the time is that we need to focus on what really matters, and that's Jesus' birth and his mission. If our lives are about that, if he is the center of our life and fulfilling his purpose, seeking his kingdom is our primary motivation, then we will find satisfaction. But also, in doing that, we learn to hold loosely the things that are temporary, the things of the world. And that's what we're focusing on over these few weeks leading up to Christmas and how we truly find fulfillment in those things. Last week, uh, we looked at the first part of Matthew chapter 2. And in Matthew chapter 1 and 2, we learn that Jesus Christ, God himself, Emmanuel, God with us, he entered this world. He was born. And he was born in humble circumstances, in a manger, uh, placed in a manger. And he came into the world certainly unexpectedly, but we read last week the wise men who hear of his birth, they learn of his birth, and they go to Jerusalem, the natural place where they would go to find a new king, uh, but not the correct place. And in doing so, they are going to bring gifts to this new king. And they spoke with Herod, they spoke, he called in the leading priests, and in doing so, they learned that they are to go to Bethlehem. And we see the birth of Christ, we read of the birth of Christ, and we hear it announced, peace on earth, goodwill toward men, right? So, that should be the case, shouldn't it? I mean, everything should just be great. There should be no war, no sickness, no suffering. And if he truly came to bring peace, then there shouldn't be any, any problems. Well, we learn immediately in Matthew chapter 2 that that is not, in fact, the case. Beginning in verse 13 of chapter 2, we read, After they were gone, the wise men had left, and an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. So he got up, he took the child and his mother during the night and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the male children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping with her children, and she refused to be consoled because they were, they were no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, because those who sought the child's life are dead. So immediately we see suffering is not done, 
because of what happens in our passage today. The last half of Matthew 2, Herod, king of Judah, in a jealous rage, has all the male children in Bethlehem, two years and younger, killed. Jesus comes to bring peace on earth, so in our humanity, in our human thinking, the natural question is why? If he really came to bring peace on earth, why suddenly do we see such a horrific example of evil and the fact that evil exists in our world? Well, the answer is, is in the fact that there are some things that Christmas did not do. And we want to look at the truth about Christmas. There are things that Christmas did not do, but there are certainly things that Christmas did do. The entrance of Jesus into the world did accomplish. So let's start by looking at what Christmas did not do. First thing, Christmas itself did not eliminate evil in our world. It didn't immediately eradicate all evil. The, the eye-opening truth right after the birth of Jesus is that we are confronted with Herod and his evil intentions, his evil actions. The Magi from the East came looking for the Messiah, the new king. A new star signaled that the new king had been born. They come to Jerusalem looking for the king to get more information. They go to Herod's palace. Herod finds out that there's a new king born, and he says he wants to know where the new king is so he can go worship him, but we find out today that was never his intention. And so he has an ulterior motive. He has a different plan for this new king. He was determined to wipe this new king out, to kill this new king before he became a threat to his own throne. And so Herod's intentions become very clear in the last part of this chapter. Isn't it something, when you really think about it, uh, in the same chapter, we have the innocence of Jesus with the corruption of Herod, right? We have the salvation of God and the slaughter of innocent children. In the same chapter, the same passage of Scripture, we have the purely good, who is God himself, Jesus, and we see an example of pure evil in the same passage of Scripture. What a contradiction that we see here. Jesus' birth, his entrance into the world, doesn't eliminate evil, and we see examples of that all over. In her book, Making Your Faith Your Own, Teresa Turner Vining wrote this. She said, sometimes I've wished for oblivion. Sometimes the world seems so oppressive and so difficult and humanity so capable of suffering that it's easy to wonder if it would not have been better if God had not created at all. At such, time, such times I've asked why, if God is all wise, he chose to create the world knowing the hatred, terror, starvation, and agonizing grief that would result. And, I mean, if we're all honest, we've probably asked some version of that in our lives, right? Why did God create the world if he knew that evil was going to exist? Because guess what? God knows everything. He knew man was going to sin. Now think about it. Let that sink in for a moment. When he created Adam and Eve, if he truly is all-knowing, he knew that they would fall into sin which means he already had a plan of salvation that he knew was, he was going to implement far before that. But that still, 
begs the question, if he knew all of that was going to happen, then why did he create? Is God real? Does he exist? If he does, why would he do that? Well, what we need to understand is God in his infinite wisdom, and we know why God created. It was for relationship, for his glory. He redeemed man for his glory to have relationship so that we could know our creator. There are several reasons why God created, but what we need to understand is that God is not the source of evil. And that's hard for us to understand, and especially when we begin asking questions about why would God create knowing all of these things would happen. But we need to realize that God is not the reason evil exists. The reason evil exists is because sin entered the world when Adam and Eve fell. The reason we have evil in our world is because sin is in our world. The reason we have evil is because sinful man takes God's creation, which we see over and over again. God declares his creation good in the creation accounts. What he created is good. What he created was good. That is reaffirmed over and over again. It's not until sin enters and sinful man takes God's good creation and makes it evil that it becomes bad. And listen, the fall affects everything. We think about the fall affecting just human beings, but the fall affects God's creation as well because of what we do to it, but also because the fall disrupts everything. Sin's entrance into the world disrupted the balance of everything. And so the reason evil exists is because sin exists in our world and because the world, all of us, every human being, Whether we realize it or not, we are all capable of doing evil. All of us. Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. And reading through what others have written about this passage, reading through other sermons, I found a sermon about this passage titled, get this, My Brother Herod. But think about that for a moment. We don't like to think about Herod as a brother, but deep within us, Scripture tells us we're all capable of evil actions. We're all capable of committing horrible things. Human beings do it all the time. And even the smallest white lie, when looked at from God's perspective, is just as evil as the act that Herod committed here. I mean, sin is sin. There are different consequences, certainly, and different Uh, ripple effects from actions, but sin is sin, and we're all capable. Evil does not go away just because Christ entered the world. One day it will, but not now. Something else Christmas did not know. Christmas did not eliminate suffering. Now, can you imagine the suffering of those mothers and fathers after what Herod did? Their children murdered by a jealous king for no other reason than He couldn't find the child he was looking for, so he just did a blanket massacre of every child two years and under. Pure jealousy, pure rage fueled by jealousy. Matthew includes a quote from Jeremiah to describe the pain of this entire incident. Matthew 2.18, a voice was heard in Ramah. Weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because there were no more. Bible scholars agree that probably 20 to 30 babies died in Bethlehem in one day as a result of this order. Can you imagine the screaming, the weeping, the wailing that took place described 
in verse 18. There was intense grief and suffering. Immediately after peace enters the world, intense pain and suffering felt by these parents. It didn't mean, just because Jesus entered the world, didn't mean that all suffering was going to end immediately. He even affirms, Jesus does later on, that in this world you will have suffering. You will have trials, tribulations. And some of you have experienced suffering this holiday season, this Christmas season. The loss of a loved one. Someone who is facing terminal illness. Someone who's facing some other illness. You yourself may be facing illness, financial hardships, uh, any number of things. The uncertainty of your job, the uncertainty of your family, family issues, any number of things. Many of you, for this Christmas, when I asked the question last week, are you satisfied, immediately you said, no, I'm not satisfied because I'm dealing with fill in the blank. This has happened. Suffering exists in our world. There's no way around it. And if you haven't experienced it in some way, shape, form, or fashion, one day you will. Life is difficult because sin is real. And evil exists. And where evil exists, suffering will follow. Especially for the people of God who are attempting to serve God and attempting to be faithful. Christmas did not eliminate suffering in the world. I guess all in all you could say that Christmas did not make the world a safe place. We do not live in a safe place, but that's okay because God is in control. And even in the midst of suffering, God can take that suffering and use it for His glory and for our glorification. We see in Scripture, He uses it. And I brought this morning uh, an iron, and for those of you who may think that this is the first time I've ever touched an iron, I do iron my own clothes, don't I? I do. I guess that's a little self-serving, but I do. I take pride in that. But I got, we, we use an iron for what purpose? To take out the wrinkles, right? I'm not going to plug it up because I don't want anybody to get burned this morning. But we do use an iron for the purpose of taking a wrinkled shirt like this. I tried to find the most wrinkled shirt in my closet to bring. So you take your iron, you plug it in, you fill it with a little uh, water to make steam, And you take whatever wrinkled piece of clothing that you have, and the purpose is to iron out the the wrinkles, to make the shirt straight, to shape the shirt, you could say. So you take your iron with steam and, and heat, and under the heat, the shirt will eventually... The, anchor, the wrinkles, <laughs> easy for me to say, the wrinkles will be ironed out, right? It's the pressure, it's the heat, it's the steam. And in doing all of this, you are shaping this shirt or your pants or whatever, right? You're making it look nice and neat and pressed. You've got a purpose in it. And it takes all of those things, the heat, all of those things to make it what you want it to be. Well, think of suffering as this iron. God takes suffering and puts us under pressure, puts us under heat. And in doing so, he irons out the wrinkles. There are things in our life that keep us from depending on him. We'll call those wrinkles. And it's in suffering that he highlights those things, that he shows us those things that we might not be able to see any other way. And through the pressure, the intense heat of suffering, he shapes us. 
because we are forced into a position where we have to depend on him in ways that we never would because when things are good, when life is good, we become too dependent on ourselves. And it takes something hot, something difficult, something painful at times to remind us just how incapable we are of running our own lives and how incapable we are of defeating all of the evil and all of the the difficulties we see in life. And so God uses, he doesn't cause suffering. We know that suffering exists because evil exists, and that's a result of Satan and man falling into sin and sin entering our world. But God uses everything for the good of his people and for his own glory. And he uses suffering. And it's in those, those hot, intense moments If we will let him, that God forces us into a position where we trust him more. We grow to become, we're shaped more like him. And we're more easily able to focus on the things that matter. His birth and the mission that he's given us. He himself. And in suffering, we're able to hold loosely the things that don't matter as much. The things of the world. Because when life's not good... You don't love the things of the world as much, right? When things aren't going well, it's a little easier to to focus a little less on those things and focus more on Jesus Christ and draw close to him. God uses suffering in a way that he to, to accomplish things in our life that would never be accomplished any other way. God Christmas did not eliminate suffering. First John two, fifteen through seventeen tells us. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away. Hold loosely the things of this world. Focus on Jesus. Hold things in this world loosely. Because the world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. In suffering, in difficulty, in pain, we're reminded that we have something so much greater than temporary existence. We have the relationship with our creator and we have the the assurance of eternal life. So now that we understand, hopefully, what Christmas did not accomplish, what Christmas did not do, let's think about what Christmas did do. It does give us that hope I just mentioned, which is better defined as assurance. We have assurance of some things as a result of Christmas. What Christmas did do is it gives us hope assurance that one day God will do away with evil once and for all. Not now, but one day he will do away with evil. An important concept that we, I think we we would do well to wrap our minds around. Jesus' birth didn't eliminate evil instantly from this world. Jesus was born so that evil might be destroyed one day. It's all a part of his plan, all a part of the redemption of mankind. And that will culminate one day with him returning, and evil will be eliminated once and for all. It didn't happen on the day of his birth. It still hasn't happened today, but one day it will happen. Look at 1 John 3, 8. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. So Jesus came to destroy evil, which is described as the work of the devil, and it is... It is He's doing that today, 
But how is he doing that? If it hasn't happened yet, how is he doing that today? Well, he's doing it one life at a time. Every time someone comes to Christ, that's a step toward evil being eliminated once and for all. It's a part of his, we don't understand all of God's plan for salvation and why he does things the way that he does. But what we do know clearly from scripture is that Jesus came into the world to be the sacrifice for our sins. His his death, his resurrection from the dead makes it possible for us to be saved. But he also gives us a choice as to whether or not to follow him. It's every person's choice to accept that gift of salvation. But every time one person does accept the gift of salvation, that's one person that's free from sin who is no longer under the authority and power of Satan. So that's a step toward the final elimination of evil. He saves as people find a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, their lives are changed and the work of the devil is destroyed. That's how Jesus is eliminating evil. He's eliminating it again, one life at a time. And thank God there will come a time when he takes us home to be with him where there is no evil and suffering in the world. The first funeral I ever did as a pastor was a funeral for a a lady by the name of Vandalin Carpenter. I believe I've mentioned her before. Vandalin was a longtime member of the church, had taught Uh, Sunday school for years and years and years. In her later years, she suffered from dementia. And she was still, though, I mean, faithful every Sunday. Her family arranged it to where she was able to stay in her own home during the day, and she would sleep with her son and daughter-in-law at night. And so she was as independent as they come. I believe she was in her 30s when her husband died. She never remarried, raised two boys on her own. And I guess the 30s, the 1930s, uh, and it was just the strongest woman you would ever meet. And even in her later years with dementia, you could see how strong she was, which I'm sure made it challenging for her kids to take care of her as she got older. But that's why she did as well as long as she did. And she, you know, she would at times forget who her own son was. She would forget where she was. But if she ever started quoting scripture, her memory would click just like that. The things that are closest to our heart are the last to go, and she, God's word, was close to her heart. And she could quote scripture word for word, even to her last day. Well, she had a a heart attack, and her family rushes her to the hospital. And if there's one thing about Miss Vandalin, she knew, and she would would quote uh, the verse in Revelation about how things wax worse and worse, and how we're seeing that all the time, but she was always confident in her salvation, never lost that. And she goes to the hospital. She's in the emergency room. A nurse uh, is taking care of her. It's obvious that she's having a heart attack. She's in her 90s. Her chances are not good. But the nurse looks at Miss Vandalin and says, Miss Vandalin, I want you to know, or Miss Carpenter, I want you to know that we're going to take care of you so you don't need to worry. And she looked at the nurse and said, let me tell you something. I am not worried because I know where I'm about to go. Within hours, she was with her Savior. She was in heaven. That confidence comes from the fact that we know our Lord entered the world. And while he hasn't eliminated evil in the present right now, for those who trust in him, we know that one day we will go to a place in the presence of our Lord where suffering does not exist, where dementia does not exist, where heart heart attacks do not exist, where sickness does not exist. That same confidence that Miss Vandalin had in her final moments, you and I can live with today 
Because while evil still exists now, there will come a day where it no longer exists. What else did Christmas do? Christmas also gives us the hope that one, one day God will do away with suffering. We have suffering now, but one day that will not be the case. It didn't, Christmas didn't eliminate suffering, because, but because Jesus was born, one day there will be no suffering for everyone who calls him Lord. The same confidence Miss Vandalin had. Revelation 21 verses 3 and 4 tells us what eternity will be like for those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and who cling to him as Lord in the present. Verse 3, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow, or crying, or pain. All of these things are gone forever. That means that when we look out at the world in front of us, and when we see suffering in it, the appropriate question, and listen, we all ask why, and that's okay. God expects that. He understands that. He's patient with us in that. But the final question should not be why. The final question for believers should be when. Lord, when are you going to return? Because asking that question reflects a heart that is focused on Jesus, his birth, his mission, and who is living in anticipation of his return. We ask, when, Lord, will you come and eliminate all of the suffering that exists? When we're reminded of that in real ways, which we are constantly, that suffering exists, that evil exists, That should make us grow a little more anxious to see Jesus come and take us home. And it should make us a little more motivated to fulfill the mission he's given us while we do wait. It's good to know, at least for me, I I hope you agree, it's good to know that after we have suffered in this life, which we all will to some degree, some far more than others, but there is pain in this life, There is loss in this life. There is grief in this life. Life is not perfect. It is not a, the world is not a safe place to live. But isn't it good to know that once all that's done, we will finally be in a place where none of that exists? I don't think we really think that way because it's so hard for us to imagine that place, isn't it? It's so hard for us to believe that there truly is a place where sin does not exist because we're confronted with it every day. We see it everywhere we go. We are reminded in concrete ways as we were just night before last that lost, loss exists. That tragedy happens in an instant. That life can change immediately. But if we can ever allow God to fully give us an eternal perspective, then that changes how we think about our present. That changes how we view suffering. It still hurts. It's still painful. Loss is still tragic. But it changes how we're able to process that as children of God because we are living looking for the return of Christ. We are living anticipating that day and that place that we know exists if we believe Scripture, that place where suffering and evil do not exist, will never exist. And it's that hope that helps us hold on. Christmas did not eliminate evil. It did not eliminate suffering, but it did give us hope, and hope that's understood as assurance. Now, I want you to think about it this way. 
I brought some coins with me. And what's one of the things we do with a coin? We flip a coin, right? You watch a football game, beginning of the game, they flip the coin, all right? And there's a head side and a tail side. So, okay, uh, Landon, I want you to call heads or tails. Okay. It's heads. Sorry. There's no prize anyway. I was just making a point. Okay. All right. Let's try it again. So Landon got it wrong. Let's see. Um, Joseph. Heads or tails? Since Landon played Joseph, I figure, you know, tails. Heads. Come on. I swear it's not one-sided. All right. Does anybody else want to give it a try? Anybody? I see a hand back there. Just shout it out. Heads or tails? Heads, all right, that's a good, a good choice considering it has been. It's heads, good job. Everybody give them a hand, all right. So out of three, one person got it right. When we think about hope, that's the way we think about hope. You got a 50-50 shot, right? Maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't happen. But when we think about the hope that we have in Christ, we don't want to think about it that way, okay? All right, Landon, you ready? All right. What were the chances? Good catch. What were the chances of that landing? Coming up and going down. 100%. And why is that? Gravity. All right. Okay, look. Oh, too far. Sorry. <laughs> got to be ready. Oh, you got it. All right. Good job. I'm just throwing money. What were the chances? The chances of me not hitting Caleb were pretty good. But what were the chances of that coming down? 100%. Why is that? It doesn't matter how many times I do it, right? doesn't matter. All right, heads up. Heads up. Heads up. What are the chances? Everybody's ready because why? Everybody's ready because it's going to come down. So when we think about hope, don't think about heads or tails. Think about what goes up must come down because that is 100% certainty. Jesus said, I will go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will do what? Not heads or tails. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. But absolute, 100%, just as sure, even more sure, if that's possible, than the law of gravity, Jesus will one day step out behind the clouds and come to take those who are still alive to be with him. And all of us will be reunited in heaven, where there is no more suffering, there is no more pain, there is no more difficulty, there is no more sickness, there is no more death. That is absolute 100% reality. While Jesus did not eliminate suffering, he did not eliminate evil, he did bring us that kind of hope, that assurance that we are secure in our Savior. But to be secure, you have to be secure in Christ. There is no other security. Just as certain as that quarter coming up and going down, it is absolutely true that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except by him. His own words. There are not many paths to God. It is only by faith in Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection, the salvation that he offers, that you can live with that type of assurance. So if you're here today, I want you to know life is tough, life can be painful, but your creator loves you. And in the midst of pain, don't ever believe the lie that God does not love you because he proved his love in sending his one and only son Jesus to die on the cross 
so that for those who believe in him, we could be free from sin. And maybe today's the day that you accept the greatest Christmas gift you will ever receive in your life, and that's the gift of salvation through putting your, by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. We know, Father, that you did not eliminate suffering in our world when you entered the world. Evil exists, sin exists, pain exists, suffering exists, but what you did do was give us hope, assurance, that one day evil will be eliminated once and for all. One day suffering will be eliminated once and for all. We know that by your, your perfect sinless life, by your death as a sacrifice for our sins, by your resurrection, we can be free from sin and we can have victory over death because you've given us victory. And that one day we too will be, we all, while we all sin and the consequences of sin is death, we all too also can be raised from the dead and live eternally with you. You've given us victory. But the only way we achieve, we experience that victory is by putting our faith and trust in you as Lord and Savior. We have to believe that you alone are the way to be saved, the truth, the life. We have to trust that your sacrifice is sufficient. We have to believe that you are Lord and that you have paid that price, that you are alive today. Through faith, we receive the gift that we could not earn, we cannot earn, we do not deserve, the gift of eternal life. And so I pray, Father, that if there is someone here today, in this place, in this room, watching, listening online, who has not put their faith and trust in you, that they would right now, in this moment, believing that you are Christ, that you are the Savior, that you are Lord, that you gave your life, to forgive sins, that they would cry out to you and invite you into their lives, not knowing all the answers, but be willing to put their faith in you as Savior. Lord, I pray that they would do that right now in this moment. For those of us who know you, as we live constantly, daily with the reality that we are in an imperfect world where sin and evil exist, I pray that we would continually keep our eyes on you, focusing on you, believing that you one day will return and that we would live in anticipation of that return and that our lives would reflect that by our faithfulness and our willingness to share your love with everyone we come into contact with, to share the good news. Lord, we thank you for the promises, the assurance that you give. Speak to us now. May we respond in obedience to you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand for a time of commitment?